This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Gene Sperling is a former director of the National Economic Council. He's the only person to have served in that role for two presidents, both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. In his time with the Obama administration, he played a key role in budget negotiations, manufacturing policy, and the expansion of tax credits for low-income working Americans. He is the founder and director of the Center for Universal Education, which specializes on education for girls and boys in developing nations, and he just joined the board of U.S. Steel. He joins me now for a closer look. Gene, you worked on tax issues in two administrations. So let's start with the recent tax cuts. Trump's promised over and over that the tax plan would cost him money, wouldn't be good for rich guys like him. Did that really play out that way in your view? I don't think there's much question that it did not play out that way. And I, I think it's you know, going to be continually looked at as, as one of the most political and rushed and unnecessary you know, policies that we've had. And, and we're seeing the, the negative impacts I think it will have on increasing economic inequality as opposed to reducing it. And I think uh, not just crowding, not just the typical deficit crowding out, but crowding out the ability of us as a country to use some of those resources uh, on things that are absolutely critical to our country, from infrastructure to helping people who need jobs connect with the skills to jobs here, uh, to you know things that are really vital for uh, uh, for our country. You know, and I think the thing that's such a shame is when I say this, Arthur, people say, yeah, but didn't we have to bring the corporate tax rate down? And what I try to remind them is that both President Obama and President George W. Bush supported the idea of bringing tax rates down uh, from 35 percent. President Obama was to 28 percent. But virtually everybody on the Democrat and the Republican side agreed that that wasn't supposed to be a net tax cut. It was supposed to be reform. You were going to bring in as much money, but you were going to do it by taking away loopholes, taking away tax expenditures so that we could have a lower rate. And what we saw President Trump and the Republican Congress do was say, we're going to go down to 21%, something virtually nobody in the business community was going to talk about. And we're going to give a net tax cut of over a trillion dollars. And this was not something that there'd ever been a consensus or agreement on, that the apples of the world or the pharmaceutical giants of the world actually needed hundreds of billions of dollars in net tax cuts. And so what we're seeing is Apple, and I'm a great user of Apple. They're a great company. But them they're doing a $100 billion stock buyback. It's not going to do investment. It's not going to uh, um, uh, to workers. And I'm not blaming them. I'm blaming our policy team, the policy structure under President Bush and the Republican Congress, who instead of just doing reform, 
that lowered rates and made us more competitive, gave a giant windfall to the most well-off companies and many of the most well-off individuals, thereby driving our deficit more to 5% of GDP and doing nothing with those resources to really meet the issues of economic security, infrastructure, and skills that are most critical to our future in dealing not just with workers in poverty, but but ensuring that the middle class is strengthening instead of hollowing out. There were no conditions on the business tax cut, no requirements for investment or hiring. How were you looking at structuring corporate taxes when you were advising President Obama, for example? Well, you know, it's a very good point. I, I think that uh, we uh, were did believe that it was okay to give incentives where they were linked to a clear benefit for the U.S. economy. So an example of that was strengthening the R&D tax credit. There you were lowering taxes for companies, but it was conditioned on them increasing R&D in the United States. Most of that money went to workers. The same with things like the new markets tax credit. So I think that when you're doing tax reform, you're just trying to make the system more rational. You're trying to make sure that, you know, what you want in a tax system is people to be thinking not about international tax arbitrage, but you want company, great companies to be thinking about how do they innovate? How do they have great products? How do they have great services? What I saw when I was in the Obama White House and the Clinton White House was companies just focused so much on how they could take advantage of our tax system. So the idea of rationalizing it, uh, uh, taking away those kind of incentives, having a lower rate but not giving a net windfall to companies, that to me was reasonable. And in that case, I don't think you had to tie it to something new because you weren't giving a net benefit. You were just making uh, the system more rational, more competitive. If you're going to give companies a lower tax cut, if you're going to give the largest, richest, most successful companies a huge tax break, I don't think we should do that. But if you were going to do any of it, you would want to be able to say, yes, they got a little less, but it was only because they were hiring workers who were long-term unemployed. Gene, you're on the board of U.S. Steel, so you must have a view on aluminum and steel tariffs. Are they going to help the steel industry in the short term or the long term? And if not, what is needed? Well, obviously, as a board member for U.S. Steel, I'm supportive of, of, of anything and have a fiduciary duty to support those policies that are good for our steel companies. Uh, but I do think that when you're looking at steel, um, it is important to make sure you're addressing as well as possible what is the core problem. And the core problem is that China has oversubsidized steel uh, and led to far greater capacity, which I do believe has had an unnatural impact on prices that is lowering uh, uh, which has hurt U.S. workers. And so I do support the instinct that we've got to get tougher on China, make sure that they're big boys now, that they're playing by the rules, and that they're not promoting their growth at the expense of our jobs. 
Um, but I do think that it is important to make sure that as they're going forward, that they are helping to bring the world together to get tougher on China. Uh, and, you know, that's probably a little more how I personally would have designed uh, this effort. You believe in the efficacy of the earned income tax credit, and you've written about your plan to greatly expand it. EITC for all. Tell me about this. Arthur, I think one of the proud things that happened in the, uh, in the, in, under President Clinton was he really put forward a, a bit of a unifying moral call, which you see echoed today by people from Barack Obama to Bernie Sanders. Simply put, if you work full-time, you shouldn't have to raise your children in poverty. You should be able to have a degree of living wage. And part of that solution is in a higher minimum wage. And there's been a great fight for 15 and fight on the streets to do that, which has been great. But one of the important ways you can also do that is to give a bit of a subsidy for those families that are working hard but just still struggling. And when you give that type of an incentive, you're rewarding work, the evidence shows it has tremendously positive effects on the entire family. You're not discouraging jobs in any way because it's an additional uh, uh, amount of resources. And it's been the right thing that we as a country, particularly under President Clinton, wanted to focus that particularly on often single parents who had multiple children. But the problem, Arthur, was it created a huge hole that we weren't doing as much through our tax code to help those people who maybe didn't have young children, who were individuals or a young couple. And so my proposal was let's expand the earned income tax credit so virtually anybody who's making up to $50,000 when they're working is getting that extra help. Now, that's not just something that would help lower moderate income families because the fact is probably 50, 60% of families will at some time uh, see their job, their income go down, and this becomes an important uh, security, a sense of economic dignity. If you're working hard and you're falling below a certain level, we as a country want to reward you for that. We want to ensure you have a degree of dignity uh, in your economic life due to your work. So I think this expansion of the EITC is one that uh, I'm even seeing starting to get some support in conservative circles because they realize that this is a way of subsidizing people who are working, are doing their part, uh, but struggling through often no fault of their own to get closer to that sense of economic security and the American dream. Now, when we did have a repatriation holiday for foreign stashed corporate cash in 2004, 90% of the money was used for stock buybacks and dividends. Why do you think it would be any different now? Well, the truth is you have every reason to think that it would be worse now. And the reason I say that is that we've just been through a period, Arthur, where you've had some of the largest companies who have the most at stake for repatriation already had huge amounts of cash on the sidelines that they were not investing. And you've had historically low interest rates. So it's very hard for somebody to make a rational argument that the reason somebody wasn't making a productive profit 
uh, earning investment in the U.S. was they couldn't bring their cash back when they already had cash and lots of financing opportunities. So I think it was more predictable now that it would be as bad as it was in 2004. And I think, uh, you know, because the economy has been improving for a long time, yes, you're going to see some raises or some bonuses now, but that's because you've had a long uh, recovery, uh, not just these, uh, not due to this tax cut. So, you know, my guess is that uh, the more the evidence rolls in, as we've seen, the more we're going to see there's going to be very little different in 2017, 2018 than there was in 2004. This will be a win for stock buybacks, people whose compensation is tied to their company stock, uh, and not uh, not uh, some kind of magical boost for investment in the United States or workers' wages. Gene, what about long-term? What do you think the effect of the tax cuts is going to be in the longer term after the initial stimulation? Uh, and, and is the Trump deficit going to be a problem in the future? You know, unfortunately, I see very little positive long-term effects. Uh, in the short term, you're right, it will create some stimulus. But even the stimulus it provides is poorly designed. When you want to stimulate the economy, you want to get the biggest bang for the buck that the taxpayer is putting forward. That means things like infrastructure. That means giving money to people, to workers who have, as economists call, a high propensity to consume. Or simply put, when they get a dollar, they need to spend the dollar. When you're giving money to those who are the most well-off, which is what the individual tax cut does a lot, or companies who are simply going to return the money to well-off investors. Um, you're going to get some stimulus, but it's bad bang for the buck. And you can argue that it's not even the best timing in the business cycle. But we'll probably see some you know, high or some benefit for this for a year or two. But I think the reality is you're going to see uh, us uh, having perhaps 5% deficit as far as the eye can see. And even if in today's global economy, uh, one can tolerate a bit of a higher deficit. It's still going to crowd out the investments that we would have needed in our country. I, and I think many people, would have tolerated some increase in the deficit at this point if you could say this was for a major effort to retool how we do skills development, connect people to the job that are needed, to second chances, to the type of innovation in the United States that matters, to infrastructure, to building the safety net stronger in a time of the gig economy and domestic workers and many people falling through the cracks. With all of these, you could say our deficit's a little higher, but we took on our country's biggest problems. I mean, here... We have to suffer from the fact that we are going to be dealing with higher deficits because we basically gave the most fortunate in our economy a windfall that they did not need. It's also reported that Gary Cohn left over the aluminum and steel tariffs. What do you think the new National Economic Advisor, Larry Kudlow, is going to bring to the job on trade issues? And do you think that he's going to last any longer? As you said, having done this job twice, I think 
to be National Economic Advisor, to do it well, you have to have a president who has the type of leadership and seriousness that allows you to do it well. You often used to say that you couldn't have been as effective at the uh, Security and Exchange Commission without a president that was willing to give you total independence. With President Obama President Clinton, you had someone who wanted serious process. Now you have a president who really makes decisions off the cuff, based often on tweets, off anger, off appealing to the base. When the idea of a serious National Economic Council director or National Security Council director is that they are pulling together the experts in the country, in the government, making strong analysis, pro-choice decisions that go through the cabinet and then are presented to the president in a rational way so they can weigh evidence and make decisions. I mean, that is very much the heart of that job. I don't know how anyone, whether you're Gary Cohn or Larry Kudlow or Gene Sperling or Arthur Levitt, I just don't know how anyone can succeed in that job with a president who has such a little attention span or little interest in serious decision-making as Donald Trump has exhibited so far. Trump made sweeping announcements on Chinese tariffs, and now thousands of companies have had to come individually begging commerce for an exception. Is this the trade policy businesses were hoping for? When I look at this, what it makes me think is just how important mm-hmm. it is to actually take public policy and government seriously. I don't agree with Donald Trump on much, but I do share the instinct that we got to crack some eggs with China, that they need to understand that we're not going to tolerate certain actions and treatment that they may have put on the United States when they were uh, not the powerhouse that they are now. But that doesn't mean that you don't want to do it in a way that's smart, that's sound. And what I see happening now is that they're a bit all over the map. And, you know, right now they're trying to deal with thousands of potential exemptions from their 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum. At the same time, they're desperately trying to close a NAFTA agreement so that it could still be voted on this year. At the same time, they're carrying on the 301. And what you just don't get is the sense of, real competence and strategy in dealing with it. So here's a place where I think some of their instincts may be right, but I think you're seeing a bit of chaos and volatility uh, uh, that, again, I think comes ultimately from the top, even if people below aspire to do things in a more rational way. Gene, is it possible that Trump can get better trade deals using his aggressive bilateral approach rather than focusing on big trade deals like TPP? Well, I think in the long run, you know, again, one of the few instincts I share with Donald Trump is that with China, anyways, it does make sense to be taking a bit of a tough position and to be willing to have a little friction to let them know that we're serious. I think the approach that is so, at times, disrespectful of multilateral processes and just even working with one's peers is ultimately not going to be in the U.S. interest. So, for example, if you're serious about taking on China, you want to bring together your allies 
because many of them will agree with you that China is abusive on forced technology transfers, on even commercial espionage. So here's issues where you could be joining the rest of the world together, either to isolate China, which is what much of the goal of TPP was, or to put pressure on them on steel capacity or forced transfers. And instead of the United States leading this coalition, which I think would be the greatest threat to China, you have the United States in constant battles over a variety of different issues with many of our allies, including even Canada. And so, you know, I think that there can be some argument for doing some bilateral agreements and being tough bilaterally, but I think ignoring the U.S. leadership role in often bringing together the world and our allies for greater causes whether it's climate change or improving our the global trading system, I think that type of leadership is important. And I think the I think Donald Trump is doing real harm to our long term interests by not only ignoring it but in many ways uh, abusing that trust. Now the Democrats, including uh, Booker, Sanders, and Gillibrand, are introducing uh, plans for guaranteed jobs proposal. The types of job would include building infrastructure like roads, as well as providing services such as child care. Does this idea make sense to you? Well, overall, I love the fact that many of the Democratic leaders are focusing on this type of jobs program because it is, unlike the tax cut, about using our resources for a double win the win of getting people to work, uh, uh, getting their personal security and dignity strong, and doing so in a way where it's actually contributing to our country, whether it's through care jobs or service jobs or infrastructure jobs. So I think overall, I think this is a, a great trend. Now, of course, policy always has devil in the details. And I think where I think where people are going to have to look more closely if they think about winning and governing is getting clearer on what is the ultimate goal of some of these guaranteed jobs proposals. Is it really just to make sure that that last, you know, couple of million people looking for a job have a job? Or is it to make sure that we're really helping the people who are having the hardest time accessing our workforce, long-term unemployed, people coming from the criminal justice system, people who've had disability with, with disabilities? So for me, I think part of what people are going to have to do is get a little clearer what the focus is, because you would design a program differently if you were worried about the macroeconomic impact or worried about tightening the labor market. Then you might be if you were trying to make sure that you were trying to give access to workers who have been shunned or have a disadvantage. That type of program would probably be more targeted, more concentrated, have more what's called wraparound services. So I like the instinct. I like the Democrats are putting forward these proposals, but I also think it's healthy to debate the details, debate the purpose, so that if we win, we're actually ready to govern. The Washington Post wrote about three studies on Trump voters in Michigan. And the common answer is that former Democratic voters saw the face of the Democratic Party nationally 
shift from a glorification of the working class to multiculturalistic militancy pushed by the far left of the party. Do you agree with this, and do you think the party can get back the support of the working class? I think it's important when you're when you've gone through such a let's be honest somewhat traumatic uh, event as, as losing a presidential election to Donald Trump to both be hard on yourselves and reflective, but also uh, uh, not to overdo it or try to draw simple lessons. I mean, the fact is that uh, seventy-eight thousand votes go a different way. Uh, you know, Comey doesn't <laughs> do his final press conference, and we're talking about a President Hillary Clinton here. Um, but on the other hand, I do think that we have to address the fact that um, th- that perhaps there has been a greater disconnect um, with a lot of workers who feel that uh, they were just not you know, front and center in the minds of of their government, uh, and that they were uh, uh, that people were focused on too many other issues, and that we were not uh, expressing the kind of values of work and responsibility, and coming up with solutions that addressed workers who felt left behind. So I'm I am in that that mode that thinks that we don't have to, uh, you know, there would be a mistake if we ever decided. Well, we're we're going to focus less on uh, the needs of of minority communities who are struggling to rise in the economy. But on the other hand, that we could do a better job and must do a better job in having bread and butter economic solutions that make some of those workers feel like Democrats have real solutions. He served as the director of the National Economic Council under Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. He's on the board of U.S. Steel, he heads Sperling Economic Strategies, and he's a contributing editor for The Atlantic. Gene Sperling, thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have comments about the program or suggestions for topics, email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. 